April is the cruelest month, breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. I'm Alicia Rogi. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. We also talked to two experts, Gabrielle McIntyre and Hannah Sullivan. This is the last full episode of season two. Alicia, can you believe it? No, I cannot. No, it's crazy. (laughs) It is. So it's the last episode in a book, but it's not the final episode of the season. That is coming in two weeks' time and will be a special mini-sode where we think about some of the questions we've been discussing over the last two seasons about what a book of the century is. And in that process, we want to hear from you. We would love to hear your take. What makes something a book of the century in your view? Email us your thoughts, tweet at us, and if you're feeling sprightly, you can even record an audio message and email it to us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. We will feature some of them in the episode itself. Okay. I'm going to start off, as always, with a brief introduction to T.S. Eliot. And I'm going to tell you a little about the poem. Then we'll hear from the experts and have a conversation about it. Erica, T.S. Eliot. Yep. Tell us about him. Okay. Thomas Stearns Eliot was born on the 26th of September, 1888 in St. Louis, Missouri, where he lived until he was 16. The Eliot family had been part of the Bostonian elite, so he naturally went to Harvard to study. There he earned a BA and an MA in literature. He spent a year in Paris after graduating before returning to Harvard in 1911 for further graduate study in philosophy, where he read Indian philosophy and Sanskrit. In 1912, he met and fell in love with Emily Hale, a fellow member of the Boston Brahmins, who would be a muse to him for much of his writing career, though they would never marry. Eliot returned to Europe in 1914 on his scholarship to Merton College in Oxford, But Oxford felt dead to Eliot, boo, and he spent (laughs) most of his time in London, where he met and became close to Ezra Pound. Eliot would settle in Britain for the rest of his life. In 1915, he met the intense and free-spirited Vivian Haig Wood, and the two headed off rather quickly. They were married after about two months, without the knowledge of their parents, but the relationship was not happy. It was strained by mental and physical illness and infidelity. On both sides, apparently, although Vivian was often vilified in accounts of the relationship. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, 
Eliot's first major poem, was published in the journal Poetry in 1915, attracting wide acclaim. His first collection, Proofrock and Other Observations, appeared in 1917. Living on in England, Eliot worked as a schoolteacher and then as a bank clerk at Lloyd's Bank. It was while working at the bank that he wrote several important essays and The Wasteland, which established his importance as a critical and poetic voice. He then began working as an editor at the publisher Faber and Faber, where he helped to shape the development of English poetry in the 20th century. He converted to Anglicanism and took on British citizenship in 1927. And after 17 years, Eliot and Vivian formally separated in 1933. In 1938, Vivian was committed to a mental hospital where she died in 1947. Eliot never visited her. He was awarded the Order of Merit and the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1948, and in 1957, he rather abruptly and secretly married his longtime secretary, Valerie, who was 30, he was 68, and he died eight years later on the 4th of January 1965 at the age of 76 widely regarded as one of the most important poets of the 20th century. Well, Erica, that's fascinating. But what we really want to know is what did Eliot have to say about cats? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Alicia. There's really very little to say. What? That's not true. I'm joking, of course. (laughs) There's so much to say. There's actually way too much to say, so I'm going to have to keep it brief. (laughs) Eliot's felinophilia is legendary. He wrote a series of poems about cats for his godchildren that became an entire collection called Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats that was adapted by Andrew Lloyd Webber into the rather strange and strangely long-lived dance musical Cats, (laughs) which in turn became an uncanny horror flop of a film in 2019. (laughs) So in these poems, he spoke about jellical cats and practical cats and old Gumby cats and made up funny names for them and things like that. On the website tselliot.com, which I highly recommend, there is an image of him holding a cat with the caption, Tom in his study with Quaxo, mm-hmm. which I assume was a cat of his. And that's a name that he actually mentions in his poems about cats. Here is something that he said to a friend in a letter in 1936. When a cat adopts you, and I'm not superstitious at all, I don't mean only black cats, (laughs) there is nothing to be done about it except to put up with it and wait until the wind changes. There you have it. Okay, Alicia, explain all of the possible meanings of the wasteland (laughs) in two minutes or less. Go on. Well, that's a tall order. So I'll skirt it by starting with the publishing history. Great. The first thing to note is that the Wasteland will be celebrating its centenary anniversary in 2022. So join in the celebrations if you like. The Wasteland is one of those rare poems that was hotly pursued by publishers even before they had seen it. In part, this was because of Eliot's reputation, but it was also because of his friend, the savvy poet Ezra Pound acting as an intermediary between prospective publishers and Eliot. The Wasteland first came out in the fall of 1922 in two literary magazines. In the UK, it was featured in the first edition of Eliot's new magazine, The Criterion. And in the US, it was featured in The Dial, an established, well-esteemed literary magazine that had a corner on the market of what would come to be called modernist writings. And this is where the publication story gets interesting. 
There had been an extensive process of prickly negotiations and reaching agreeable terms with the dial, and the terms that they finally offered to Elliot included $150 for the poem and unofficially their $2,000 dial award. But what's so fascinating is that this was offered before the editors had even seen the poem. As the scholar Lawrence Rainey would later put it, literary history records few spectacles so curious or so touching, i.e. two editors of a major review offering a figure nearly three times the national income per capita for a poem that neither had seen or read. What they had decided to purchase was less a specific poem, more a bid for discursive hegemony. And by that, he means that the Dial was buying this poem to shore up its position as, in his words, the representative of advanced cultural life. Now, the poem was also published as a book in December of that year by Bonnie and Livewright in America. And this version uniquely included a number of notes on the poem from Eliot himself. And it has become more or less the standard version. Shortly thereafter, Virginia and Leonard Wolfe's Hogarth Press, which we talked about in the episode on To the Lighthouse, also did a special run of the poem as a book. If the dial had brought Eliot a wider readership and decent income, the poem's publication by Hogarth highlighted its avant-garde status. And according to Lawrence Rainey, across these presses for the publication of his poem, Eliot racked up what would become equivalent by the 1990s to forty-five dollars or $55,000. This was a poem that could pay the bills. (laughs) Amazing. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. So what was all the fuss about? I'll keep my summary of the poem brief, as our first guest provides a more detailed account of this complex work. What might be useful to know from the start, though, is that this is a poem about life and death and death and life. It's a response to the decline, the sea changes of civilization after World War I. The poem is structured into five main parts, which are called The Burial of the Dead, A Game of Chess, The Fire Sermon, Death by Water, and What the Thunder Said. Yet, if the five-part structure sounds neatly cohesive or simple, the expansive diversity of voices and allusions in this text can hardly be overemphasized. There are literally hundreds of allusions to myths, literary classics, works of anthropology, a nursery rhyme, dance hall tombs, sacred texts spanning from the Bible to the Upanishads, and more. The narrative also comes through a number of voices that are not clearly separated or demarcated. So what unites all of this sprawling diversity? That's a question for the experts and for a longer discussion. This episode, we're going to start off with an interview with Gabrielle McIntyre. Gabrielle is a professor of English at Queen's University in Canada. She's the author of Modernism, Memory and Desire, T.S. Eliot and Virginia Woolf, and the editor of the Cambridge Companion to the Wasteland. She also has a new poetry collection coming out this Northern Hemisphere summer called Unbound. Gabrielle, we are so delighted to have you on the podcast. And one of the questions we love to ask people at the start of an interview is, when did you first start reading this author, in this case, T.S. Eliot? What is it that made you want to keep reading him, keep studying his work? Great questions. I first read T.S. Eliot when I was 15. I remember very distinctly being with one of my good friends 
And we used to hang out on Friday evenings at my place and get up to various mischief. My mother happened to be really well read and she has always had an amazing bookshelf filled with a lot of literature and a lot of modernist early 20th century literature. One night we picked up the complete poems and plays of T.S. Eliot and we happened to open it to The Hollow Men. We were in the middle of teenage angst and trying to figure out who we were and what mattered. And we open up these pages and read, we are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. And then the poem goes on to include some amazing lines like eyes I dare not meet in dreams. The inclusive we that starts the poem pulled us right in, I think. As difficult and as avant-garde as Eliot's works are, he does seem to want to include you in these searching quandaries that he presents about how to come to terms with some quite existentialist ideas about how strange it is to be human, how to understand even our own desires, how very alone we can all feel, and how desperately we might long for transcendent meaning. In terms of what made me want to study Eliot's writing, I think I can trace much of it back to an eccentric, intense English literature professor in my first year of university who assigned us the wasteland. This teacher started to unlock some of the keys to the poem, almost as if he were raising the lid of multiple treasure chests that were endlessly mesmerizing. From there, the poem started to come alive. And I found that the more time I dedicated to it, the more rewarding the reading became. I even decided to learn Italian to try to understand Eliot's use of Dante. And then I kept returning to the wasteland through my 20s and into my PhD and beyond. Part of this is because it feels like this poem offers us a whole world, a way of being and seeing that disenchants and re-enchants at the same time that promises wisdom and insight that is both new and ancient. The poem's narrators or personages, as Eliot describes them, change genders from male to female to the transgender Tiresias right out of Ovid, and they move abruptly between a global range of geographical and historical locales from the war-torn cityscape of post-war London to ancient biblical desertscapes, a Phoenician seascape, flowering spring gardens, and this is just to name a few. So one of the things I came to love about The Wasteland is that, yes, it's a discrete literary work of 434 lines. It's a finished artifact, but it's not remotely a closed text. These are pages that perpetually invite each reader to new exploration that help us wrestle with what it means to be alive, to be human, to desire, to suffer, as we try to untangle this remarkable poetic testimony to the ways that the everyday and the mythic both course through our lives. 
Ah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. As you've suggested, we see many traces and hear many voices in the wasteland from literary history, contemporary culture, and Eliot's collaborators. So can you tell us a little about Eliot's method in composing the poem, collaborative or otherwise? We actually know a fair bit about how Eliot composed the wasteland. Eliot had two significant hands-on editors and interlocutors while he was writing. The first is his friend and mentor, Ezra Pound, a fellow American expatriate and experimental modernist poet who was more established and very well connected. The second was his first wife, Vivian Eliot, who also occasionally published her own work. Eliot gave both of them drafts at various stages in the poem's composition. And we can see their markings, comments, and even massive slash-throughs of entire pages. In fact, Eliot notoriously dedicates the poem to Ezra Pound with the inscription borrowed from Dante's Porcatorio, Il Miglior Fabro, the better maker or the better craftsman. So Eliot seems to have composed the wasteland in stages between 1921 and 1922. 1921 had been an extremely trying year for Eliot. He was undergoing what he considered to be a nervous breakdown after years of financial and emotional stress that coincided with the incredible stresses of the Great War and its fallout. He decided to take a three-month sick leave from his work at Lloyd's Bank to try a rest cure at Margate in Kent, and then to undergo psychotherapy from Dr. Roger Vitoz in Lausanne, Switzerland. It was at Lausanne that Eliot seems to have composed the bulk of the poem. Thus, it's also very much a portrait of a psyche in distress. Valerie Elliott, in her notes to the facsimile and transcript, points to Elliott's 1931 essay on Pascal, where he writes, quote, certain forms of illness lend themselves not only to religious illumination, but to artistic and literary composition. When Elliott makes the comparison between religious illumination and artistic creativity here, about a decade after he writes The Wasteland. This also suggests to my mind that Eliot, like his contemporary William Butler Yeats, was even before Eliot's conversion to Christianity in 1927, connecting the work of poetry with the work of religion during a time of increased secularity and doubt. Yeats had suggested that the arts were taking upon their shoulders burdens that have fallen from the shoulders of priests. And in the wasteland, Eliot ranges through multiple sacred, mythical, theological, and esoteric texts and figures, including the Bible, the Buddha's fire sermon, the Hindu Upanishads, St. Augustine, Greek tragedy and myth, and even the tarot pack. Eliot also weaves an astonishing array of tissues from other writers into the poem, from Shakespeare to Donne, Marvel, Dante, Baudelaire, Spencer, Chaucer, 
James Fraser, Jesse Weston, to name just a few. It's almost impossible to keep up with it all. He also imports overheard conversations from the London pub, lines from popular music and Wagnerian opera, and rhythmic influences from jazz and ragtime. One thing I always find fascinating is that the way Eliot creates this collage, this snipping up of fragments that he then pastes together to create a radically new piece of art, doesn't ultimately feel intimidating. It feels instead as if Eliot is offering his reader immense respect. He's assuming our own readerly capabilities and he's asking us to listen. In his own words, he steals these intertextual fragments of other people's work because he wants them to flower in new milieu, to blossom out of the past in new forms that he knew were impossible to anticipate. That is really rich, and it gives us so much to think about. At the start of your introduction to the Cambridge Companion to the Wasteland, you enticingly remind us that many have called the Wasteland the greatest poem in English in the 20th century. You've already given us a little bit of a sense of why that is. But in your own words, why has this poem received such high praise? Yes, I know it's quite a statement. For one thing, the poem is utterly revolutionary in its form, in its disjointed free verse, its collage and montage techniques that borrow from photography and early cinema, its multiple narrative perspectives, and also in much of its subject matter. On the one hand, the poem seeks spiritual answers amid the wasted land of a modernity trying to reconstruct itself after Darwin, after Nietzsche, and after the horrors of the First World War. On the other hand, the poem ruminates about the agony of psychological breakdown and of sexual violence and gives a stark picture of death amid life within everyday modern existence. The poem literally changed how poetry could be written and how poetry could be read. And the poem has become a major touchstone for what experimental early 20th century literature is about. And the poem does still end up feeling really relevant today. Each time I teach it, my students feel a bit awed, startled, and entranced. It still feels new to them. And this was a core aim of the modernist writers that Ezra Pound summed up in his rallying cry, make it new. I think part of its enduring vitality is because the poem so brilliantly expresses the dilemma of being enmeshed as individuals with our unique subjectivities and stories in both the broader context of culture and history and in the natural cycles of life, death, and regeneration. So, I mean, I can guess your answer to this, but this is a question <laughs> that we ask all of the people that we speak to. Is The Wasteland one of the books 
of the 20th century for you. Would you pick it out of Eliot's body of work? Yes, I would. And it, it's fun to think of it as a book. It really is a bit of an epic or even anti-epic or meta-epic. It's propelled by a quest for meaning, but without a recognizable epic hero at its center. So actually, I think in some ways, Eliot wants us each to be the epic hero in handing this incredibly open-ended poem over to his readers. And remember, it closes with the Sanskrit shanti, 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 peace, 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 without any final punctuation. In doing this, he's asking us to take on the difficult but immensely rewarding task of reading it and rereading it and folding its insights into the fabric of our own lives. So yes, I would definitely choose it out of Eliot's body of work. He has other poems published as books that I would have a hard time passing up, Ash Wednesday and Four Quartets especially. But if I had to choose just one, The Wasteland would be it. Thank you. We've learned about The Wasteland from what you said and also been able to feel your real evident delight in this poem still since you first encountered it as a teenager. Oh, thank you. Alicia, The Wasteland, big poem. Yeah. How did you find it? I find it somewhat intimidating, if I'm honest, and mm -hmm. also enjoyable. I would say that T.S. Eliot and his and this poem are so deeply respected in modernist studies that there's this it's like a shibboleth. It's like it's like one of those things that separates a jogger from a runner. Mm. So I guess it's with a measure of irony that I say that I really like this poem. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like it's kind of a freighted question. Like, what do you think Absolutely. about the wasteland is my point. And yeah. what I do genuinely like about it is maybe true to form, the combination of like intellectual and aesthetic pleasure. It makes unexpected juxtapositions that are alluring and provocative. And I like that. Mm. And I like the puzzle it sets out where it's like, oh, all these illusions, I want to go and read about them and try to figure it out. And then I at least personally am not convinced that after hunting down illusions, I don't feel that I've mastered the poem. And maybe if I were a modernist, I would have mastered it and I could speak to you with this kind of authoritative confidence. But I also think that's what's beguiling and exciting about the poem, that it keeps you a little in the dark. Like the more it kind of lures you in, <laughs> the more labyrinthine it kind of is. So that's sort of my experience of the poem. What about you? I like your saying that it kind of defies your attempt to master it. I think there is something a little bit wild and unruly about the poem. I don't know if it's possible to kind of master it. There's an openness about it that makes it difficult to pin down. And, and yes, that elusiveness that's going in all directions all the time. You definitely get a sense of Eliot, the erudite, learned reader. Absolutely. I think I like that feeling of recognizable language and echoes of things you've heard before, mm. right? And you and I both have backgrounds 
in which, say, the language of the Bible is quite resonant to us and familiar to us. So that's one of the things that really stuck out to me constantly was just how much there is like, not just even kind of actual quotations from the Bible, but certain kinds of phrasings that just sound very biblical. And there's something about inhabiting those voices and those ways of speaking that has a certain effect on one. I think that has to do with this historical awareness that like in tradition and the individual talent, one of Eliot's famous essays, he's so keen on emphasizing the importance of historical awareness. And the biblical intertext is part of this cultural memory that people have to different extents in London, in the U.S., in the early 20th century. And so it doesn't matter if you're religious per se, but there are certain stories or certain rhythms of language or forms of language. Cultural echoes. Cultural echoes. Yeah, there's that are culture shaping. And that's what he's so good at playing with. But as you say, yeah, then you can kind of trace those things further. And toward the start of the poem, actually it begins with the first part is The Burial of the Dead, which is a title given to the burial service in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. So right off, we have this religious illusion. And the part I want to highlight says, What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images, where the sun beats and the dead tree gives no shelter, the cricket no relief, and the dry stone no sound of water. Actually, I think there are a few biblical illusions here. But to start with the Son of Man reference, Jesus is called the Son of Man in the New Testament, but also it's a reference to Ezekiel, and God calls Ezekiel this Old Testament prophet or a prophet in the Torah, to be more historically accurate, <laughs> Son of Man. And Eliot makes a note in his book version that identifies this with early in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel 3. But what's interesting about that to me is actually later in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 37, God is also calling Ezekiel son of man. And that's where there's this famous vision of the valley of dry bones. So Eliot doesn't make that connection. But I feel like that's the more, I mean, there's something about this process of illusion and citation where what's important isn't just like, ooh, it might be alluding to this specific moment, but really that whole context from which a quote is taken. And then what happens when you put it in a new context? And to me, that's the much more evocative, larger context where in the book of Ezekiel, God gives gives this vision to the prophet where he's supposed to speak to these skeletons, basically, and then they're going to rise up and live. Leg bones connected to the knee bone, knee bones connected to the shin bone. Is that right? That's that? (laughs) Yeah, basically. Eliot has later on in The Burial of the Dead, a depiction of London, which more clearly recalls like Dante as this unreal city under the brown fog of a winter dawn. A crowd flowed over London Bridge, so many. I had not thought death had undone so many. So there's this living and dead intermixing. Later on, he talks about he who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. Or later than that, even dry bones can harm no one. There's just this insistent kind of dryness, death, and kind of a hinting at an inversion of resurrection imagery. He who is living is now dead. It just reminds me of this resurrection imagery of he who is dead is now living. Yeah, and the yeah. question of what does that mean for civilization? Is this a turning point? Is it another mythic cycle? What kind of wasteland is this? Is there a fecundity in the wasteland of this post-war moment? That corpse you planted last year in your garden, has it begun to sprout? <laughs> Will it bloom this year? 
Speaking of death and a lack or desire for resurrection, it's kind of interesting that the most living beings in this poem, the most vibrant voices, are often in the sections that feel almost a little bit parodic. The voices of working class people or mimicking musical songs like, oh, 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 that Shakespearean yeah. rag, it's so elegant, so intelligent, which is a quotation from a real musical song. That's in the second section, A Game of Chess. Or, when Lil's husband got demobbed, I said, I didn't mince my words. I said to her myself, now Albert's coming back, make yourself a bit smart. He'll want to know what you've done with that money he gave you to get yourself some teeth. He did, I was there. You have them all out, Lil, and get a nice set. He said, I swear I can't bear to look at you, and no more can't I, I said, and think of poor Albert, etc., etc. You know, there's these voices, and it's not quite clear what's being communicated. For me, it's not quite clear what's going on. I read somewhere that Elliot and Vivian used to do this kind of mock knee, these working-class voices to each other that they listened to, I think, one of their maids and, and mimicked her turn of phrase. I don't think that was necessarily mocking her, but there is something about taking on these voices, but I'm not entirely sure to what end. It's not clear what the substance is of the people's lives who are speaking these lines. And then I think that this kind of comes through in the fire sermon, the third section, where we hear from Tiresias, who is watching a typist who comes home at tea time and she goes to her messy flat and waits for the expected guest, is the quotation. He's described as the young man carbuncular. Oh, it's such yeah. a good description. <laughs> He's a small house agent's clerk, one of the low on whom assurance sits as a silk hat on a Bradford millionaire. So a, a millionaire from up in the north. And Bradford was, if I remember correctly, a place where weapons were manufactured during the war. So there's something a bit sort of sleazy happening here. Nouveau riche. And yeah, totally. But based on like destruction. And then what's really interesting is in the section, there's like this hidden sonnet where you get this A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G ish rhyme scheme. And in that sonnet is described their really lackluster, borderline, non consensual tryst that they have. I'll read some lines from it quickly. And just listen to the rhythm as well. It's really regular. It's like mm. iambic pentameter. The time is now propitious as he guesses. The meal is ended. She is bored and tired. Endeavors to engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once. Ugh. Exploring hands encounter no defense. His vanity requires no response and makes a welcome of indifference. And I, Tiresias, have for suffered all, enacted on the same divan or bed. I, who have sat by Thebes below the wall, and walked among the lowest of the dead, bestows one final patronizing kiss, and gropes his way, finding the stairs unlit. So it doesn't have a perfect rhyme and couplet at the end, which emphasizes the kind of brokenness. But this is like these two people engaging in what feels very much non-consensual to me, this really damning statement of the caresses being unreproved if undesired. So she's not saying no, but she's definitely not saying yes. There's no enthusiastic consent here. But then she turns and looks a moment in the glass, hardly aware of her departed lover, 
Her brain allows one half-formed thought to pass. Well, now that's done and I'm glad it's over. There's this real sense of like people having sex but not connecting at Mm -hmm. all. No connection. So there's this thing that is supposed to be a life-giving act or maybe an intimacy affirming or creating act, but it instead is horribly barren. And that's something that really stuck out to me. So it's really interesting that Eliot's using this kind of traditional sonnet form that we associate with love often, or holiness, right? Dunn's holy sonnets. These kind of elevated ideas of human relating either to one another or to a higher power, but instead here they're used to describe something that is quite base, debased, really. Does that convey this sense of this decline in civilization, this move toward monadism or isolation that is that has lost something valuable? How do you read that? Is it more ambivalent than that? I just think that this contrast is showing very much a sense of loss, of brokenness, and maybe one in which the old forms no longer suffice, or one in which human culture is moving or has moved towards something that is emptier. I think what you've shown here highlights one of the aspects that's so provocative, that's so enigmatic about this poem that feels so masterful in its unexpected connections and its unexpected mm. meldings of form and content, but also of like one line to the next. There's a mythic illusion in one moment and then something so prosaic as lackluster sex or the demotic in when you were pointing out like the Shakespearean rag or in more colloquial moments that can be, have an aspect of parody and to what effect. It's slightly disorienting. It's slightly beguiling, intriguing, but not necessarily in a clearly life-giving way. It's a reflection upon Mm. something. Well, we know at that time, Elliot was also going through relational difficulties and a psychological breakdown. And his view of modern life wasn't particularly positive. Yeah, he says in the fire sermon towards the end, on Margate Sands, and Margate was where he went to recuperate, I can connect nothing with nothing. You know, what's funny is he isn't connecting nothing with nothing. He's connecting a lot of some things with a lot of some things, but there's a kind of a desperation almost in trying to connect all these things together. And you really get the sense of a person's very cacophonous mind All these different voices competing, different voices from everyday life, from things that have been read, from history, from culture, from religion, all jostling with each other for space or for Mm. some sort of connection to make it all make sense so that there's something redemptive to be found. But then we get these disconnected statements at the end of that section. It goes, la la, to Carthage then I came. Burning, 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 burning. O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest, burning. And there's no punctuation mark at the end there. So it's these little fragments that are sitting with each other and they're really emphasizing this kind of breakdown. That section you were just talking about, on Margate Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. That section is highlighted by Helen Gardner as one of these sections in which Pound intervened huh. in their kind of really interesting editorial collaborative work on this poem. And there are other sections as well where you can see, well, <laughs> Helen Gardner can see Pound 
intervening to vary Eliot's use of meter in really dramatic ways that connect with that formal experience you're emphasizing, where it's that work of concision and compression, which leaves yeah. so much to be explained. Helen Gardner doesn't explain exactly Pound's role in this intervention, but she does offer an account of an early version of these lines in the poem, which are very monotonous. And then how they become really, as she puts it, beautifully modulated in the passage that derives from it. So here in the earlier draft, after the turning of the inspired days, after the praying and the silence and the crying and the inevitable ending of a thousand ways and frosty vigil kept in withered gardens, after life and death of lonely places, after the judges and the advocates and wardens, and the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the turning of inspired nights, and the shaking spears and flickering lights after the living and the dying, after the ending of this inspiration, and the torches and the faces and the shouting, the world seemed futile like a Sunday outing. I mean, even that last rhyme, it's so like <laughs> shouting, mm. outing. I mean, it's just, it's <laughs> kind of expected and boring. This is in section five, what the thunder said. Yeah. And that would be the prior version. Do you want to read out the later version? Okay. After the torchlight red on sweaty faces, after the frosty silence in the gardens, after the agony in stony places, the shouting and the crying, prison and palace and reverberation of thunder of spring over distant mountains, he who was living is now dead. We who were living are now dying with a little patience. So that changes quite a lot, actually. It changes dramatically. There's still a little bit of rhyming happening with faces and places, and there's still after, after, after in the th first three lines, but it's compressed. Yeah. It's better, I think. Absolutely. And instead of after the living and the dying, which is just sort of abstract and less evocative, he who was living is now dead. We who are living mm. are now dying. Yeah. There's something about living to dead, dead being like a finished verb, you know? And then we who are living are now dying. So it continues. It's happening. So there's interesting things happening with the diction there too. And even the pronoun choice. Yes. This section I really like. And in part, it's because of the repetitions in it. There's a lot of repetition here about mountains of rock without water. There's just dry, sterile thunder without rain again and again. It recalls, say, the first section where he's talking about dull roots being stirred with spring rain, or stony rubbish, broken images, dead tree gives no shelter, the dry stone, no sound of water. So there are these images that recur throughout the poem that kind of weave it together, but not quite. Mm. I mean, there's something interesting about the structure. It's kind of what you were talking about earlier, the idea that you can't pin it down or plumb its depths. Mm. I mean, it's a bit too watery a metaphor for what we're talking about. <laughs> But it's hints of an underlying or an overarching structure, this imagery, this repetition, this idea of dryness, of rocks, of brokenness, of death, and the longing for rain. And interestingly, at the beginning, spring rain is actually, April is the cruelest month because it yeah. promises hope. And is that even something that is warranted or possible in this case? In that first stanza, this group is looking at summer coming over the Starnberger See with a shower of rain 
and they're in like a Hofgarten. It just seems really pleasant and everyone's outside just kind of chatting. And then it's in the mountains. There you feel free. I read much of the night and go south in the winter. It all feels very civilized and pleasant. But then by the end, when you were talking about in this decayed hole among the mountains, in the faint moonlight, <laughs> the grass is singing over the tumbled graves. Shout out Doris Lessing. Yeah. The grass is singing. <laughs> and it's like the mountains come back as themes and they're never as pleasant as in that first instance where you feel free. No, no, no. In the rest exactly. Of it's a decayed hole among the mountains. And then there's the shift, which is interesting at the end, where we shift into India. Hmm. And we shift into an entirely different kind of a mode somehow, just after a damp gust bringing rain is the shift. Ganga was sunken and the limp leaves waited for rain while the black clouds gathered far distant over Himavant. Which is, of course, a word for another set of mountains, the Himalayas. And then the thunder speaks in Vedic Sanskrit, da, data, dayadvam. Damyata. What do you make of that, of that shift, the shift in languages? Because we've been in fairly strictly kind of Western European languages so far, have we not? German, a bit of French. Italian, right? Yes. There's something that changes here, it seems to me, but I don't know what to make of it. We end with Shanti, 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 which is what Eliot glosses as the kind of equivalent of the peace that passes all understanding. And he says, these fragments I have shored against my ruins. Maybe that's something that's key here. And that final stanza, that final bit of that section has all kinds of different fragments in it. It goes back to the Fisher King image, which we haven't spoken about, but which is important in the poem. Then it goes to London bridges falling down, hmm. the nursery rhyme. Then we get some Italian, then we get some French, and then he says, these fragments I have shored against my ruins, and then he goes back to the Vedic Sanskrit. So maybe that's what he's doing here. He's drawing a distinction between fragments and ruins, hmm. because we've had ruins and bones and dead things for the entire poem. We've also had fragments of various voices and influences and snippets from culture and history, as we've said, and now we can see them interacting in a different sort of a way, that they aren't all just the same thing, actually, but maybe the fragments are an attempt to salvage something out of the ruins, something that's never completely whole or complete. There is something about that wider cultural resonance. And I feel like resonance works well to speak about the voice of thunder. <laughs> yes. Which for a poem about civilization, Indian philosophy, Indian religions, like these are phenomenal developments of human culture. And he is pointing towards something fantastically rich beyond the constraints of a more narrow tradition by bringing this in. Although even in the midst of that, we read, by this and this only we have existed, which is not to be found in our obituaries or in the memories draped by the beneficent spider or under seals broken by the lean solicitor in our empty rooms. Da. Like there's something about the richness of life or of what sustains life that exceeds memory, that exceeds 
what's contained in the notes on memory or on history obituaries. And maybe that exceeds the kind of isolating rooms, the empty rooms of modern life. We also spoke to Hannah Sullivan about the wasteland. Hannah is an acclaimed poet, winner of the highly esteemed T.S. Eliot Prize, in fact, as well as a lecturer in English at New College, Oxford. She has written extensively on modernism, literary stylistics, and, yes, T.S. Eliot. Part of the reason that we were excited to have you is that you bring this confluence of knowledge. So we wanted to chat with you about this somewhat as a poet and scholar, someone who has experience with different traditions, but also contemporary of the time references, and to get a little bit of your take on what did this poem do that was really contributing to its moment, but also how has it impacted poets for the last hundred years? Like, is there this enduring sense of making it new that's impacted the craft of poetry for others? I think that it is a radically novel poem, not only in its own time, but also now. And in some ways, I, I'm not sure that it actually has had all that much influence on subsequent poets. Like I think other of Eliot's poems, like certainly the poems in Proofrock and other observations, you know, with the kind of meticulous detailing of suburban evenings and, you know, commuter life and the sort of dreary side of the city, the kind of English flaneur poem. I think those were very influential, but the wasteland is basically just too weird. And it's too compact, it's too various. And I think it's too orchestrated by a kind of theatrical or sort of oral sense of performance. I mean, the thing that's holding it together is the sort of confluence of all the voices so that it's possible to imagine a single speaker, you know, doing, as the original title said, doing all of the voices in it. So, yeah, I don't really see that much wasteland in, you know, I think maybe Dylan Thomas, maybe radio drama, maybe Platt's poems and Ariel, which are very kind of voicey, that you can see some of the sort of sharp lines, that the particular kind of sharp speaking voice that speaks just a single line, um, how that might persist. But I mean, definitely wouldn't say in, in terms of my, you know, certainly my own writing that I ever feel conscious of, that, you know, and now it's a wasteland moment. I think maybe once using the the just the phrase thank you which is comes up in the conversation with Madame Sesostris. She says, I do not find the hangman fear death by water. I see crowds of people walking around in a ring. Thank you. If you see dear Mrs. Equitone and tell her I bring the horoscope myself. Just that little bald phrase on the place that's inserted, I guess, right at the start of the poetic line. But I mean, I think Eliot was not particularly aware of what he was doing when he was writing it. He thought he was writing a poem about London was writing a long poem, a poem in four parts. I think he hoped it would be rather longer actually than it is. And I think he also hoped that he was going to find during the writing process a kind of superstructure to hold it together, which never really arrived or to the extent that it had arrived. I and mean, if you compare the draft and the final version, to some extent Pound convinced him to get rid of. So one of the things that's most interesting about it, I think, is this sense of sort of counterpoint between two really different creative minds and sets of techniques I think it's rare to find a, a work that really has that inside it. It's sort of almost like a fault line between a systematizing sort of intention for the poem, which is to present, you know, decayed cities, including London in the present after the war, at different moments in time, and images of isolation 
and loneliness and sort of monadism, like people shut off and unto themselves with this Poundian technique that is just really interested in voices, I think, and in what sounds good and in sort of ghostly kind of theatrical hauntings, you know, from the past, sort of ventriloquistic haunting rather in the manner of the early cantos. So in that sense, yeah, I think as a result of being the product really of two separate creative people's processes and intentions, it's really unusual. And it will be, I think, really hard for a single person to create it. So you say that you don't feel like the wasteland has influenced your own craft as a poet. What about Eliot more generally? Do you feel his influence? I think, yeah, when I am working with my editor, Matthew, who also works a lot on Eliot and is writing a book actually about the wasteland at the moment, I think he and I are always aware of the danger of sounding like Eliot in full quartet, of borrowing a certain kind of discursive sort of prosaic manner. You know, that's the sort of Eliot that's much easier to parody as well. You know, like the Chad Whitlow um, parody. I don't know, like I would be pleased if I if I thought I'd written a line really that parodied or seemed similar to the wasteland, but I can't really imagine in my own writing having that degree of comfortable sort of historical reach. And I also think, you know, it's worth bearing in mind that copyright law has changed you know, vastly since the early 20th century. And so it wouldn't actually be possible to write like this now, even if you wanted to, because you would just be infringing copyright left, right and centre and wouldn't get the permission probably to include the lines in your work. I mean, I think our sense of ownership around quotation has actually changed. And so there's sort of a system of partial annotation, which is provided by the notes, kind of wouldn't actually be adequate now. You know, you have to pay for permissions, right, to, to quote other people's lines. Yeah, in some ways, I think this is the end of a period of oral culture. I mean, Elliot obviously had committed a lot of writing to memory, and that was a large part of his school education, was learning poetry off by heart. You know, to the extent that some of these quotations are inaccurate or not quite right or slightly altered from the original source, you know, that's the way that we remember poems when we learn them. It's not the way that we would necessarily kind of copy a line out of a text. So I don't think it's a readerly poem in quite that sense. What you're saying about copyright, I totally get it. I'm all for people owning their work and for that being protected, but it does feel like something is a bit lost by that. Although, of course, Eliot himself spoke in terms of stealing other people's work. So it's not like that was a completely foreign idea that that you, you could steal someone's work. He did talk about stealing people's work. And obviously he was trying to get in a sense around copyright or at least around the problem of familiarity recognition by saying that you should you know, take from people who are remote in time and place. I think it's critics have tended to kind of trust him on that. But I have tended to find that the more you do read other contemporary poets, and I think to begin with, you know, as an early student of modernism, this and comes by pound were almost the only things that I was reading from this period. But now as other, I hope Molly is Mina Loy, other writers from this period, you know, one pays more attention to them you do start to see similarities between Eliot's writing and those of other people. I mean, even his friend, Comrade Aitken from Harvard, who is hardly known as a, a poet, was writing in a sort of long poems in a sort of similar mode at this period, as was Richard Aldington. And those poems are just ones that we now don't remember. And I do think sometimes Eliot is taking things from contemporaries, not necessarily very directly or, you know, without a lot of alteration that we just simply haven't recognised as being illusions. So that the more you push, the more you seem to find other sources appearing in these works. You know, over the last decade or so, people like David Chinnett's as work on Elliot and popular culture, I think readers have become much more interested in the way that this is a sort of jazzy, syncopated, 
poem that is really keen on using some of the resources of contemporary music hall and song to appeal to actually not a narrow or sort of esoteric or especially learned audience, but actually a pretty wide audience potentially. I mean, it's a kind of romantic belief, but you know, Elliot had this belief that you could get something, you could in a way understand poetry without understanding it at all, that it could please you before it was understood. I didn't know how true that is for many people, but certainly I think for me, this poem came to life when I heard, you know, as a teenager, Elliot reading it aloud. I'm sure it didn't really understand it at all and didn't understand any of the references, but something about the performance is very intriguing. Do you remember that experience? How did his voice come across it? Did you enjoy it? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose this was the era before, you know, not before the personal computer, but before the internet. And so, you know, you're reliant on listening to these things on tape. It's actually a little bit more of a process to get hold of the recording. I remember my English teacher playing a bit of Elliot reading Proof Rock and then getting a tape of him reading The Wasteland. And I remember those as very distinct experiences. Elliot is basically doing a sort of naturalistic kind of intimate, you know, almost like parlour setting. And it Wolf said that she first encountered this poem, which of course she then printed at the Hogarth Press in performance. Elliot sang it and chanted it and rhythmed it rather than giving it to her to read. It's quite interesting that some of its most important first readers actually did encounter it first as an oral document, but that was in someone's house. So I think this is a poem that works well in a small room. It's not a poem to declaim to a a large audience, you know, even the addresses you, Hippocrate Lecter, I mean, the things in quotation, they're sort of addresses to an intimate reader. There are lots of replayings of potentially intimate conversations between two people. We're interested to see that the New York Public Library had chosen the Wasteland in particular as the piece from Eliot to include. And it's a pretty sensible selection, perhaps, but I don't know. I was wondering about what you would think of that when you were talking about other poems from him, perhaps having more influence on other poets. I mean, I think it is his greatest poem and that created immediate problems for him because it was a poem that if not recognized by the wider community, I mean, the sort of conventional newspaper reviewers are pretty down on this poem, you know, so much waste paper, it got bad reviews, but the cognoscenti, you know, the literati, the people who ran the small magazines, they loved this from the beginning. You know, as soon as he reads it, Pound says he's wrapped by the seven jealousies. And then it went on to win this Dial Award. And it really made Elliot, you know, sort of celebrity in in the not just the British, but the Anglo-American, to some extent European world of modernism as soon as it was published. And he is still not 40 when it's published. He became, a, I think, a bit of a burden for him in the sense of how would you repeat this performance? And in a way, he never really did. I mean, he never wrote something to equal it. Um, and he certainly didn't write anything with perhaps as much spontaneity. I mean, you might not think it's spontaneous because of the editing process with Pound, but actually the poem was fairly quickly written. If you look at the composition of four quartets, you know, which is pretty minutely recorded by Helen Gardner in that book about the composition of four quartets from the manuscripts at Cambridge, you can see it was an atrociously difficult process. I mean, some of the passages, especially the ghost passage, the compound ghost passage in Little Gidding, where Elliot was almost writing by committee, kind of sending drafts to groups of male friends. And then it seems losing his nerve when people criticise a particular image or a particular ending, trying to replace it. Well, there is, a, although putting the pieces together was difficult, a kind of wild spontaneity about the actual original act of composition here, I think. I mean, he's probably slightly unhinged when he wrote it. I mean, as everyone knows, he ended up being to Margate and he had a nervous breakdown, got time off from the bank. But I think from the beginning of 1919, when his father died, he had this incredibly intense creative period. You know, he wrote 
Laurentian in the summer of 1919 and, and tradition and individual talent kind of in the same month. Actually, most, you know, the essays in the Sacred Wood, I mean, a lot of his best known essays are written in that 1919-2021 period, which by the end of the 1921, he'd essentially finished his work on the wasteland. So it was this phenomenal three years of creativity, which he wasn't really, I think, ever able to recapture. What role his job played in that you know, is a bit hard to say, because obviously in the mid-20s, he joined the firm of Faber & Guire, then Faber & Faber, and became a poetry editor. And so he spent much more of his time engaging with other people's manuscript. And perhaps that had a slightly constipating sort of effect on him um, in terms of sharpening that editorial mind, which is always very strong in him, the sort of blue pencil at the expense of the person that's able to create the first draft, you know, having the courage and sort of confidence to do that. And I guess there are also recently, you know, some of Vivian Elliott's papers that have been in the body for a long time have been published and edited by Anne Pasternak Stater. And the question of what role Vivian played in the composition of this poem, I think, is quite an interesting and to some extent unanswered and an unanswerable one. But and we know that she suggested a couple of the more conversational lines, you know, what, what do you get married for if you don't want children? But the extent to which she inspired the feelings of the poem, but it did say that he the marriage brought Pano happiness and to him the state of mind out of which came the wasteland. Oddly, he actually says that in this situation where he's actually defending why he married her. I mean, this thing that's good, like in a way it was good to pursue the state of mind from which came the wasteland. But I guess he didn't want to pursue that state of mind much further. So the wasteland is a text that was is born out of profound unhappiness, which isn't to say that I think it's an unhappy text. I mean, in some ways it's almost... The opposite, I think, it's this sort of a manic kind of exuberance about it. It's cacophony of voices, you know, it's when it doesn't, it wants to distract itself with everything it can find, the whole sort of set of resources of Western culture and popular culture to avoid this moment of silence or looking into the heart of the light, this moment of solitude, which quite transparently the poem's greatest anxiety, you know, the lean solicitor breaking the seal, the empty room, each person alone unto themselves without communication. It forces people into communication in a strange way with each other by having voices, including voices in different languages and from different time periods and voices written by Elliot and voices written by other people sort of echo each other and blur into a composite whole that could at least in theory be spoken by, by just one person. Thank you, Hannah. These have been incredibly enlightening and enriching contributions. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for asking me. We have heard a lot. We have said a lot. In your estimation, is this one of the books of the century? Here's the thing. I also found this poem intimidating to read. And I don't think I love it. I think it is a puzzle, as you said way at the beginning of our conversation. And it demands teasing out and it rewards exploration and investigation. But I don't love it as much as I love Ash Wednesday and Four mm. Quartets. I really, really like those poems by Eliot. I find them moving and 
emotionally engaging and intellectually and even spiritually nourishing, actually, some of those ideas. And so I totally get why the New York Public Library chose this. This is arguably, allegedly, Eliot's best poem. It was a major cultural intervention. I don't even know what it, what kind of an effect it had in culture because I live post-Eliot in a cultural milieu that was shaped by him, not just as a poet, but also as a, a critic and an editor. So it's hard for me to say no to this poem. And yet I prefer those other ones of his. I feel conflicted about this because while I appreciate what Eliot was doing in this poem, it doesn't grip me the same way as those other poems. And yet its cultural place, its importance is hard to deny. So maybe no is my answer. Hmm. And I know that it seems very countercultural. And what am I? I'm just this like dilettante who doesn't really know what I'm doing, but amateurish because I don't feel capable of reading this poem and really getting why people say it is the best poem in the 20th century or, you know, speak in these superlatives about it. I will say, though, that this poem really came alive for me when I watched a couple of performances of it. Specifically, Fiona Shaw, the actress performing it, she did it in the 90s. That entire performance is on YouTube. But then she did it again for the Wasteland iPhone app. And I saw the Burial of the Dead, the first section on YouTube. I haven't seen the rest of it. But it is spellbinding, her mm. performance of it. And it made it come alive in a different way. She does all the different voices, as it were. And I felt it's orality, it's theatricality, it's drama in that. But what about you? I really appreciate that answer. You're a poet and you're saying that. So I, who am not a poet, feel even less qualified to sort of weigh up and compare the merits <laughs> of these. You're a great reader of poetry. So you have unsettled my my assumption that I would say just yes to the wasteland. I'm still going to say yes to the wasteland, but I wouldn't. I'm not sure how to compare it against some of Elliot's other works. Strictly speaking, I would note I happen to see that early manuscript drafts of this poem were for some period of time under the ownership of the New York Public Library. <laughs> really? Cool. Yeah. And so that's a cool connection with the New York Public Library, including yeah. this on its list. And what I would say in favor of this poem is perhaps related to a kind of pleasure, which is the pleasure of the puzzle, the pleasure of, of certain kinds of emotion being connected with certain kinds of intellectual provocation. And I like that intersection. That's exciting to me. And I also like the, it's a slightly oppositional experience reading The Wasteland. Like I'm vying for meaning. I want to see, you know, what does he mean? Can I get it? And <laughs> so it's, it's kind of fun to prepare. I listened to readings a couple of times and then I read it obviously myself. And then I just got sucked into reading essays on it. And like you say, it rewards rereading, it rewards more reading, tracing down the illusions. And I still... I'm still bested by, by it. That's fun to me. And it points toward ways of thinking about culture that I think are enriching, civilization that are enriching, thinking beyond the Western tradition, but deeply within the Western tradition. Where my appreciation for the poem veers into, dare I say it, 
something more enthusiastic, a, a version of love for the poem, is when I think about it in connection with the essays that Eliot was writing in the same period, which I really love his essays. And yes, this is a person who is also anti-Semitic and misogynistic, and we have some glaring faults with this person, but he thinks so interestingly about literature and about what other writers like Joyce are doing at that time. The essays in The Sacred Wood are fantastic. And when I read this, it's also evoking that whole conversation that he's enmeshed in. And so for me, that also adds a richness to this. April is the cruelest month, which is why we waited until May to release this episode. <laughs> We'd like to thank the poets and academics, Gabrielle McIntyre and Hannah Sullivan, for talking to us for this episode. All original music was made by me. Yes! Thank you, Erica. It is always a treat. Our final episode will be about the books of the century. What makes something a book of the century? We want to hear from you on that. So please get in touch with your thoughts on that question or on this poem. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter. We're at literatepodcast or email us at literatepodcast.gmail.com. And as always, if you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you like to listen. Share it with friends. Tell people about the podcast. This really helps. And also check out our list on bookshop.org. It's a really convenient and cool way to order the books that we're reading from independent bookstores. And as you think about where to get your books, please support your local library. And independent bookshop. <laughs> <laughs>